that, <clears throat> that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creation. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. In Yellowstone National Park, there's an amazing geyser called Beehive. It's right outside the, the uh, Old Faithful Inn and just within sight of Old Faithful itself. Now, everybody knows about Old Faithful because it's faithful. It goes off at the same time or around the clock. Beehive, nobody knows about because it goes off when it wants to. It might be next week, it might be two weeks from now, it might be tomorrow, it might be in the middle of the night, it might be in the middle of the day. But when it goes, it's spectacular. It is, it's about as wide as the gate here. It goes about, and it's about three feet high, and the hole is about this big. About, you can about get your arms around it, but don't try that. The way that you know that it's going to go off, well, I'm, I'm sorry, and when it goes, the water just, I mean, it's just millions of gallons of water under, underneath the ground just building up steam, and finally it works its way up and goes whoosh, and it goes up a couple of hundred feet, and it goes for four or five minutes. It's amazing. But it doesn't just happen without giving an indication that it's going to blow. Because about 20 minutes before, before the beehive goes, from over here, there's a little geyserette that just spits up water about 20 feet for about 20 minutes. So what the park does is it has volunteers sta just standing at beehive, just waiting. You know, they got on their raincoats, and they got a walkie-talkie. And when they see the, this is called the indicator, the little spitter geyser. And when the spitter geyser goes, the indicator, they get on the walkie-talkie, and they tell the park rangers. And then the park rangers broadcast throughout the park. One of our most spectacular geysers is about to go. Now, James tells us that God makes us to be a kind of first fruits of his, of his creatures. That's an agricultural term. Well, I'm a, I grew up in the suburbs, and I only experienced wildlife and nature when I went camping with my family. So I have to relate things the way I can. First fruits, of course, is when, um, when you've done all the plowing and the sowing and the watering, and then you've just been sitting around waiting, and then all of a sudden the first fruits come in, and then you know that the harvest is going to come, and so it's time to get busy. The idea here with the, with the geyser is once you see the indicator go, you know that there's no way that the geyser itself isn't going to blow. So the geyser at the indicator is the first fruits of this great harvest. And that's what I think about when I think about the term first fruits, being a suburban boy who likes to camp. Well, the apostle Paul had talked about 
Jesus' resurrection as being the first fruits of the resurrection. We know that everybody is going to rise from the dead because one man has risen from the dead. And that's why he is so animated to go tell everybody that the age of resurrection has begun in Jesus' resurrection. Get on board. James has a little bit different perspective. James's perspective is that we are the first fruits. James had been Jesus' brother, had not really believed him during his lifetime, but had followed him around and heard Jesus say things like, you are the city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. But after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus makes a special appearance to James and basically commissions him to be the first head of the Jerusalem church. And James understands that when the church comes together, living together the life that God has called us to, we become signals to the rest of humankind that this is where the human story is going. Lives made alive by the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now, I taught in seminary for 25 years. Seminarian after seminarian would show up wanting to, wanting to be taught how to prove God's existence. Logical arguments from the design of the universe is what they were looking for. Um, being able to persuade people of the numerical implausibility of this amazing cosmos and then life in general and then specifically humans, memory, reason, and skill, how implausible it is that all of that would simply emerge by chance from nothing. But then seminarian after seminarian discovering that from the Bible's point of view, the biggest argument for the existence of God, and especially for his love, is people's changed lives. Haters becoming lovers. Takers becoming givers. Broken people being made whole. On this Labor Day weekend, our nation said goodbye to two larger-than-life citizens. Senator John McCain, whose life lesson to us is this, live courageously for something larger than yourself. For him, it was his country. And Aretha Franklin showed us how you can sing about being a natural woman and about R-E-S-P-E-C-T because you know that you've been loved and love Jesus. James asks us to entertain the prospect that we, all of us who belong to Jesus Christ, might live like that. Maybe not at the same scale, but each in our own way, living for something, a kingdom that's larger than ourselves, singing about the wonder and the glory of what it is to know your worth and your dignity because you've been loved by Jesus and love him in return. 
and become ourselves indicators, little geyserettes in promise that this is God's purpose, his will and intention for everybody. So James James wants us to be those first fruits. And in our passage today, he gives three hints as to what that just might look like. Asking me to entertain the prospect, can I really, really believe and hold on to these three things? The goodness of the Father, the veracity, the truthfulness of God's Word, And third, the utter seriousness of what you can't call anything else except true religion. First, the goodness of the Father. Can I actually believe, and would you you entertain the prospect that, that my heavenly Father, your heavenly Father, is actually, as our collect says, under the influence of James, the author and giver of all good things, that I, that you, would actually be in want of nothing that we actually need, that his favor is always towards you, always towards me, that with him there is no shadow or shifting, that he's not going to suddenly change his mind about you or me, and toss us on the discard pile. How rich, how brave, how courageous, how glorious life would be if I really could believe that there's no way I'll wind up on the discard pile because he's taken hold and won't let go and intends only good no matter what. Second, the veracity, the truthfulness of God's Word. Can I really believe that His words are actually life for me? That they give life, they sustain life, they guide life. That what Moses calls the statutes and ordinances are your and my wisdom and discernment and proof of God's nearness, as Deuteronomy 4 promises, that God's law is, as James puts it, the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law that gives freedom, that his scriptures, an amazing product of the combination of the genuine personalities and gifts of its various authors, and, as Moses puts it, the very finger of God. that these scriptures actually portray a world I can inhabit, not stand outside of in a cool posture of supposed dispassionate critical distance, or even worse, just ignoring, leaving on the shelf to collect dust. For James, for the psalmist, the Word of God is a mirror into my own soul It's how I get to know who I am. And it gives me the freedom from having to pretend I'm something that I'm not. 
It provides a roadmap to life. Well, not just a map, but a vision of human flourishing, almost a call from another world to imagine a whole new reality that shapes this reality. Come, it says, this is who you really are. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to, call, to sing his praise than when we'd first begun. And realizing that that truth is retroactive, that that eternal life has taken hold already. And I can sing into the reality of that life as I, as I take that world into myself, whether through the daily office or joining us in one of the immersed re reading Bible book club groups this fall that will be reading through the New Testament, whatever it takes, it's a world worth diving into, imbibing, taking into your soul. The goodness of the Father, the veracity, the truthfulness of God's Word, and then third, the utter seriousness of, quote, true religion. Our collect asks God to increase in us true religion. James calls for religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Now, religion is a term that makes people squirm today. You may be squirming. Many people list their religious preference as none, N-O-N-E, don't have one don't want to be associated with anything like that. And it's the fastest growing segment of our population. Christians have tried to bury the term under phrases like, we're all about a relationship, not a religion. The word religion, having taken on connotations of, I don't know, building a stairway to heaven or dressing up to try to make God like you. Thing is, what we do in a place like this, oh, well, whether it's in a cathedral or a cafeteria, whether it's with organ or guitar, whether it's in sleep-resisting hard pews, I know sleep is not impossible to keep away, but sleep-resisting hard pews or sleep-inducing theater seats, whether by candlelight or stadium light, it's religion, folks. It just is. It comes with disciplines. It comes with a certain shape and structure. Now, you may acknowledge that structure or only discover it when you, when you violated it. I've been in those churches too. The question is whether it's going to be good religion, true religion, or bad religion, pretend religion. And I think this is what James wants us to explore. I've, uh, a number of people have told me when I let it be known that for these next five weeks they're going to be exploring James, they're going like, oh, that's my favorite book. Well, I hope I don't mess it up for you. But here's where we're going. The contrast between bad religion and good religion. Next chapter, chapter two, bad religion the exercise of which shows favoritism to the rich, to the hip, to the powerful, or good religion, enlivened by a vision for human flourishing through caring 
for widows and orphans in their distress. And then there's chapter 3 uh, that talks about the sham religion that's led by self-deluded false teachers who manipulate people to meet their needs. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Or the real thing led by fellow servants, docents, and guides along the path out of self-deception through the bridling of the tongue. Oh, Lord, may that be the case with us. And then into chapters 4 and 5, that where James talks about a pretend religion that is cozied up to and become friends with the world in its ways, offering no real critique of the deadly sins of pride, anger, greed, or what he commends, true religion that, as James says, takes God as friend, drawing near to God, cleansing hands, and purifying hearts, and then offering to one another and to the world healing prayer. Uh, friends, let's walk this walk together and let us let James teach us. Let me pray once more our collect for the day. Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of your name. Increase in us true religion. Nourish us with all goodness and bring forth in us the fruit of good works. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.